This is a special edition of the Sufi Reverberations podcast. Rather than presenting a story, poem, essay, and a musical interlude, the following program gives expression to one episode of a multi-part editorial entitled The Essence of the Problem That Lies Before Us. This commentary is a critical reflection on the nature of the problem which underlies the existential circumstances in which we are entangled. Like religion, the idea of government involves establishing a framework of beliefs that give expression to an individual's understanding concerning the nature of the relationship among the self, the universe, and that which makes the self and the universe possible. Like religion, the idea of government may involve, but does not require one to believe in, the idea of God or a multiplicity of gods, but nonetheless, with or without God or gods, there is a sense of sacredness that tends to pervade one's beliefs about how the self, the universe, and that which makes everything possible are related to one another, which is considered to be worthy of one's veneration and commitment. In both government and religion, the sacred is that which is inviolable. The sacred is that which gives purpose, meaning, direction, and value to existence. And therefore, the sacred gives expression to what seems to be essential. For some, the sacred is a function of the divine. For others, the sacred is a function of whatever is believed to make that which is possible, possible. And in addition, is a function of whatever is deemed necessary and proper to help government officials and religious leaders realize such possibilities. Both government policies and religious perspectives often tend to share a common orientation with respect to the dynamics of leading or guiding people towards what is considered to be the nature of reality. For instance, Both government officials and religious clerics believe that they are operating in accordance with the requirements of truth, and therefore, each of the two approaches associates feelings of awe, value, respect, authority, absoluteness, reverence, and adoration concerning their understanding of the nature of those requirements. As a result, both government officials and religious clerics tend to believe that compliance with, respectively, government policies or a given religious perspective are characterized by a need for forms of commitment, duty, submission, obligation, subservience, self-sacrifice, obeisance, and morality that are mandatory in nature. Consequently, breaches of the aforementioned sorts of qualities are perceived in terms of infidelity, iconoclasm, betrayal, treason, sedition, unbelief, ignobility, sin, pathology, and crime. People who turn away from or reject what is considered to be the truth of things are perceived by government officials or religious clerics as lacking in character and reason. Such allegedly destructive, selfish, ignorant purveyors of false doctrines cannot be trusted They are disloyal, traitorous, and evil. As a result, they must be punished, ostracized, oppressed, censored, shunned, ridiculed, tortured, imprisoned, or killed.
Both government officials and religious clerics tend to make promises concerning the felicitous rewards awaiting those who are compliant with and subservient to the truths that give expression to government policies or a given religious perspective as understood, respectively, by government officials and religious clerics. Both government officials and religious clerics warn their respective congregations about the terrible calamities that are fated to befall people if the latter individuals will not adhere to the truth as promulgated by their governmental or religious leaders. Both government officials and religious clerics often try to seek to control their respective flocks in various ways. Both government officials and religious clerics often believe that propaganda, indoctrination, censorship, manipulation, undue influence, intimidation, threats, bribes, penalties, operant conditioning, classical conditioning, infantilizing, and if necessary, force, are all legitimate ways of seeking to implement the aforementioned sort of control. Both government officials and religious clerics often seem to be preoccupied with establishing, perpetuating, and using the way of power to advance their policies and perspectives. That is, they appear to be preoccupied with the development and implementation of policies or theologies that induce people to be willing to subjugate themselves to servicing the interests and agendas of government and religious leaders. Rarely do government and religious clerics seek to encourage and support the efforts of individuals to establish the sort of conditions of sovereignty that would actually assist people to better be able to seek the truth by being permitted to acquire and operate in accordance with the qualities of character that are inherent in, say, the Republican values that are supposed to be guaranteed by Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution. The principles of republicanism tend to resonate with the moral precepts advocated by many, if not most, spiritual traditions and humanist orientations. Thus, in one way or another, Republican spiritual and humanist traditions all tend to encourage individuals to be objective, impartial, unbiased, noble, honest, compassionate, fair, rational, selfless, and to not become engaged in conflicts of interest that will adversely affect one's judgment. And yet, nonetheless, many public officials and religious officials seem disinclined to operate in accordance with such principles and values. Government officials and religious leaders often tend to be evangelical, imperialistic, and tyrannical with respect to establishing the scope and realizations of their policies and perspectives. The First Amendment stipulation that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote, acknowledges the truth that is inherent in the foregoing claim. There are secular religions involving theories about economics, politics, financial and monetary policy, medicine, law, science, philosophy, and humanism, in which people actively worship and have reverence for whatever truths 
are considered to be at the heart of the foregoing sorts of perspectives. There also are non-secular religions, such as Taoism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, and so on. As the Declaration of Independence indicates, everybody has the inherent right to search for the truth concerning the nature of his, her, or their relationship with reality through either secular or non-secular means. However, no one has the inherent or derived right to seek to impose his, her, or their way of seeking such truth onto other people. The condition of certainty that exists in many government officials and religious clerics tends to be rooted in a delusion that they are right. However, a healthy sense of doubt and critical reflection is needed in order to give expression to a cautionary principle in which one realizes there needs to be some sort of balanced dynamic between, on the one hand, being free to make choices intended to assist one to be able to advance along one's chosen path in search of the truth, while, on the other hand, simultaneously understanding that there also is a need to exercise care with respect to how the ramifications of such choices might affect other people in problematic ways. Unfortunately, government officials and religious leaders are often too ensconced in their own sense of certainty to be sensitive to the damage that can accrue to other people as a result of the unbridled convictions of such officials. Article 3, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution stipulates that the judicial power that is to be vested in one Supreme Court, quote, shall extend to all cases in law and equity, end of quote, involving the Constitution, the laws of the United States, treaties, matters which affect ambassadors, public ministers, and councils, affairs arising in conjunction with the admiralty and maritime jurisdictions, controversies to which the United States shall be a party, as well as has responsibility for an array of possible controversies consisting of states and states, individuals and states, or individuals and foreign nations. Nothing is said in any of the sections of Article 3 in the Constitution about how the Supreme Court or how any of the other, quote, inferior courts, end of quote, that Congress ordains and establishes, quote, shall extend, end of quote, to the cases for which they are deemed to have responsibility. Moreover, nothing is said in Article 3 of the Constitution about the nature of the controversies in which the United States might be a party, or the nature of the controversies in which two or more states might be involved, and so on. Or, just as importantly, how such controversies might conflict with the exercise of any of the powers that have been delegated to the Congress or the Executive, or the rights and powers that are to be quote-unquote retained, or, quote-unquote, reserved, respectively, under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments for the people or the states. Article 3, Section 2 does say, quote, In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and councils, and those in which a state shall be party, 
the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. End of quote. What does it mean to have, quote, original jurisdiction, end of quote, or, quote, appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, end of quote. If a jurist is to exercise judicial power in relation to both law and fact, with respect to either matters of original or appellate jurisdiction, then presumably some sort of overarching hermeneutical method for engaging cases is going to be used in order to ascertain the nature and significance of whatever laws and facts are being considered. What will be the conceptual basis for such a method of determining the significance of any given set of laws or facts? And how does one justify the foundational concepts that are to be used in the generation of such modes of determination? The Constitution does indicate in Article 4, Section 4, that, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government, end of quote. However, to say that a government official, for example, a jurist, should be objective, impartial, nonpartisan, fair, rational, noble, selfless, compassionate, or unbiased, doesn't really resolve what it means to be objective, impartial, fair, rational, and so on. The substantive content of the aforementioned Republican qualities have to be established. Objectivity, impartiality, fairness, rationality, as well as other qualities that are associated with Republicanism, require one to have a theory about the nature of reality and how objectivity and so on fit into or give expression to that theory. To use such a theory is to set forth a framework for understanding the nature of objectivity, rationality, nonpartisanship, and other Republican qualities. To use such a theory requires one to develop a framework for how such qualities are to be used to, quote, extend end of quote, to, quote, all cases in law or equity, end of quote, or how such qualities are to be used in conjunction with determining the nature of, quote, law and fact, end of quote, in cases of either original or appellate jurisdiction, or how those Republican qualities are to be used in a manner that does not conflict with the rights and powers that, under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, have been, quote, retained, end of quote, or, quote, reserved, end of quote, respectively, by the people and the states, or which have been assigned to the Congress or the executive. One has difficulty understanding how the aforementioned sort of overarching hermeneutical theory of judicial understanding concerning, say, the meaning of the principles of Republican government that are being guaranteed to the states and the people by a judicial review, ruling, or precedent, does not also constitute a form of establishing the very sort of religion that Congress has been prohibited from undertaking. 
Religion is the process of seeking to discover and act upon the truth concerning the nature of one's relationship with oneself, the universe, and that which makes it all possible. And when a jurist goes about determining what the law and facts of a case are through engaging events in accordance with her, his, or their understanding of Republican principles, then such a person is making a statement about what that individual considers the truth to be with respect to what the nature of the relationship is among individuals, the universe, and what makes such relationships possible. One can refer to the foregoing activities as a process of judicial review, or a philosophy of law, or a form of constitutional hermeneutics, or a legal theory, or the rule of law. Nonetheless, irrespective of the words that might be used to describe those sorts of conceptual dynamics, the individual who is pursuing such a course of action is engaged in a process of establishing religion of either a secular or non-secular nature in order to be able to impose that conceptual orientation on a given population of people. All the qualities that are used to refer to the process of religion are also present in conjunction with the aforementioned sorts of judicial activities. More specifically, one speaks about the rule of law as binding, obligatory, consecrated, essential, fundamental, true, necessary, moral, absolute, transcendent, traditional, and worthy of a person's reverence, awe, devotion, and obeisance. The foregoing terms are the same sorts of words that are used to describe the foundations of one's alleged duty with respect to acting in accordance with the requirements of religion. The rule of law is a form of religious doctrine. The manner in which individuals petition the hierarchy of power within government in order to address their grievances resonates with the manner in which a person is allegedly required to petition the hierarchy of power in religion, namely with fear, trembling, and hope in relation to such presumed courts of last resort. The notion of, quote, extend, end of quote, that appears in Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution could and perhaps should be understood to refer to processes that involve non-adversarial modes of mediation and or negotiation that are brought to bear on problems in order to resolve such, quote, controversies, end of quote, in a constructive manner for all parties concerned. Such a process of mediation and negotiation could be conducted in accordance with the requirements of Republican government. However, if one were to understand the term, quote, extend, end of quote, in Article 3, Section 2, as referring to a process of interpretation or a hermeneutical dynamics that reflects a jurist way of understanding the nature of people's relationship with reality, then this is tantamount to trying to resolve problems by imposing judgments that reflect the personal religious predilections of the ones who are imposing judgment. And this is nothing other than a process of establishing religion under the pretext of delineating the rule of law. 
Article 3, Section 1 and 2 assign powers to the Supreme Court and, as well, assigns congressionally legislated powers to all inferior courts. And all such powers could be understood, and perhaps should be understood, as processes of extending jurisdiction by means of a system of negotiation and mediation in relation to various kinds of cases of controversy. To have jurisdiction in law, in fact, could be understood to be just another way of saying that the Supreme Court and all inferior courts created by Congress have the authority to bring people together to collectively work out the facts of a case and, as well, to collectively work toward determining the degrees of constitutional freedom and constraints within which people are to mediate and negotiate solutions concerning their cases and controversies. The foregoing scenario is consistent with the guarantee of Republican government that is given in Article 4, Section 4. However, to engage in judicial review for the purposes of imposing on American citizens what amounts to the religious perspectives of one or more jurists, and in the process generate precedents that are entirely arbitrary, that is done without specific constitutional authorization, which people must follow, is to be engaged in establishing religion or prohibiting its free exercise thereof. Furthermore, given that Article 3, Section 1 refers to, quote, such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish, end of quote, this means that the prohibitions that the First Amendment imposes on Congress to refrain from establishing religion or prohibiting its free exercise thereof also extends to the inferior courts that Congress may ordain from time to time. In other words, because the federal court system has been created by Congress and because Congress has been prohibited from making laws that establish religion or that prohibit its free exercise thereof, then the courts that are created by Congress are also not permitted to engage in any action that entails processes of making laws that establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof, because to do so would be a process of making judgments that involve interpretations of the Constitution, which reflect a jurist's understanding concerning the rule of law according to that individual's beliefs or according to the beliefs of a group of such individuals with respect to the nature of the relationship among individuals' universe and that which makes it all possible. And to do this is to engage in the establishment of religion or the prohibition of its free exercise thereof. Part 4 of The Essence of the Problem that Lies Before Us will be available for listening or downloading sometime within the next week, that is, some point during the first week of September 2020. So please stay tuned. The past is just a memory, and the future is but a possibility. How imperceptibly the present fades into what will never be again, as it becomes immersed in the mists of not-yet-realized possibilities. You are listening to the transitory, fleeting, perishable, fragment-filled remnants 
of the Sufi Reverberations podcast.